Okay, welcome everybody to um, episode seven, the first impressions. Um, I'm here as always with my darling friend Maggie, and Hi. we today are doing something kind of interesting because the snowstorm has separated us. Snow DC snowstorm has separated us. We are recording this podcast on Google Hangouts on Air. Um, so there's also going to be a YouTube video for anybody who's curious to see us in person. Um, so what you would need to do for that is to go to the First Impressions YouTube channel. And we have a YouTube channel now. We are so high tech. We're <laughs> <laughs> so fancy. Yes. We so we may be separated by distance and snow, Kristen, but we are never separated in our hearts. They can't stop us talking about Jane Austen. Not even if they dump two feet of snow on us. Can they stop us from talking right. about Jane Austen? That's right. That's right. And before um, we get into today's discussion, which is going to be on um, Emma, we I just first want to thank everybody who is listening to this podcast for listening. This is actually the first episode Maggie and I have recorded since we launched the podcast. All the first six episodes were recorded prior to launching and prior to going public. But since we have gone public, I'll just tell you that we have um, over 300, I think almost 350 now plays and downloads of the podcast. And we have listeners all over the world. We have Austria, New Zealand, and England. <laughs> We're huge in Australia. I mean, we have Canadian listeners. And I mean, even within the US, we've got like Idaho. It's like so cool. Every day when I look, because of course I obsessively look, we have new people. <laughs> And I want uh, to shout out to our newest fan, Alicia, who actually posted on Pemberley.com and uh, the Goodreads group and is promoting us. I love that we have someone who Thank actually- Thank you, Alicia. Yeah, somebody <laughs> we don't know. Like, I don't know this person, but she's still promoting us, which means somebody out there loves listening to me talk about Jane well, Austen. I I think what happened is my mom probably told her friends at Torah study, um, and you know how the Jewish network is. So I'm pretty sure that all of our downloads are probably, you know, friends of our moms. Oh, but I think that's really exciting that people are listening, um, even people that we don't know who maybe are also Jane Austen fans. And shout out to Alicia. Hi, Alicia. Thank you for your support. And I also want to shout out to my, our two friends, um, Kaylin and Rachel, who are both also huge promoters. And our Mansfield Park episodes actually got Kaylin to read Mansfield Park. For oh the my first God, Kristen, your dream has been realized. I now that I am <laughs> I'm validated. I can die happy now. My purpose on this earth is fulfilled to make. Okay, absolute... well, don't talk about dying happy because think about how much snow is on your roof right now. <laughs> And you were worried about it collapsing, so. <laughs> yes, right. So thanks to the fans, and I won't um, won't go on too long about them. So today, today we're going to talk about Emma. I have a little bit of a plot summary for those who have not read Emma. So, But it, was there anything that you wanted to talk about before we dive in, Maggie? I think that we should um, mention that Emma is much longer than I remember it being. So for for readers who do pick it up, um, it's not kind of a quick weekend read, maybe like Northanger Abbey would have been, which kind of felt like an extended novella. Emma is a lot to dig into. It's 
really good and I, I hadn't read it since high school so I'd kind of forgotten um, how, how long it is and so it took me a while, much longer to get through it than I thought um, but just it's kind of like a warning to people don't expect to be able to pick it up and just finish it but it's is you I think you referred to it in an earlier conversation as Jane Austen's masterpiece is Many what it's referred to it as. as her her ultimate masterpiece the most perfect of novels to quote our friend Arnie who may join us in our next podcast um, or one of our next podcasts um, but, you know, I also said to Maggie um, before we started broadcasting that um, um, hint, taking on Emma, I've never felt more nervous to do a podcast than I feel to do this podcast. And I've been thinking about it for days with this sort of anxiety because it's like going to one of those restaurants where you can order like the however many ounces of steak that's more steak than any one person should ever be able to eat in one sitting and if you eat it all, you get it free. And they've just set it down in front of me. And I'm thinking, how in the hell am I going to get through all this? Emma, is that the prime rib challenge? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you eat like, the 50-ounce prime rib? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I can't imagine you having anxiety about anything, Kristen. That just seems really surprising. <laughs> And I have like, what am I, what, what if I do a bad job? Because before we begin, I, I will actually say that Mansfield Park um, is my favorite novel of all time. Emma is a little bit more challenging for me to get into um, with, with, with regard to Austin, almost all the way through the first volume of Emma. It's, it's not published in volumes now, but it was then. Um, I was thinking to myself, like, I almost never pick up this book for pure pleasure the way I do Mansfield Park, because even though it is a masterpiece, it's sort of an anxiety-inducing book for me, and it's um, it's all to do with Emma, the main character, and Maggie and I are sort of in agreement. Um, Jane Austen even said, I'm going to take a heroine, which I'm afraid nobody but myself will much like, and Emma is a challenging character to to like, and well, where most of Austen's heroine, heroines are extremely moral down to their core, um, Emma's a mean girl. She's a mean girl. She's a plastic just like, um, <laughs> what was the movie? Well, about the oh, um, Mean Girls. Oh, no, Heathers, <laughs> right? Wait, I don't know. There's so many, there's so many like Mean Girl movies. Uh, so when I read Emma, at first, kind of like you were saying, I saw her as a mean girl. I didn't really like her. Uh, I think I sent you an email where I described her as an insufferable twat. And to some extent, I still think that's true. But by the end of the book, I did genuinely like her. And we talk about how Jane Austen's characters are relatable hundreds of years later. And after spending time with Emma and seeing how her mind works and how I related to her, the way she responded to things and the way that she made mistakes felt real to me. I remembered what it was like to be that age. And I did genuinely really like her by the end of the book. I did see her as the heroine. Um, by the time I was finishing, you know, the book, I was feeling to myself, I'm so sad that this is going to be over. I'm really enjoying this. But she's a challenging heroine, that's for sure. And that's part of what makes the book a masterpiece. And a lot of people th think that one of the reasons that people do say the book is a masterpiece is because Austin, even though it sounds like she's an omniscient narrator, she gives us... Emma is sort of unconsciously influencing our perspectives. The things that she presents to us as fact, Austin presents to us as fact, actually are the things Emma believes are fact. So that by the time we get to the end and we realize that how wrong Emma really is about everything and how blind she really is to everything, we're shocked. And then on a second reading, we go back and we see things that we never saw before. Because let me explain, maybe now is a good time for a plot summary. 
So Emma lives at home with her father, who is an invalid, and her brother-in-law, Mr. Knightley, comes to visit them all the time. So they're like a little family unit. Emma tries to play matchmaker. She has just successfully, she thinks, married her governess, who is like a mother to her, to a rich guy who lives down the way, Mr. Weston. So now they're Mr. and Mrs. Weston, and they're sort of like uh, parents to her as well. So she sees herself now as this successful matchmaker, and she makes a new friend, Harriet Smith, who is, her last name is Smith. She is a child of unknown parentage. She's a child out of wedlock. But Emma really likes her, so she's like, I am going to match Harriet with the clergyman of the village, Mr. Elton, which would be a great match for Harriet because he is a member of the landed gentry, just like Edmund. You know, like if you don't have money, that's what you do. You go into the clergy because it retains your social class. So she wants her friend to have her same social status so they can still be friends. Anyway, she fails utterly to make a match with Mr. Elton because she's so blind to the fact that Mr. Elton actually is trying for her. He's not really in love with her, but he wants to marry her, Emma. And so he wants her money. He wants her money. And it, it may be a good time for me to mention that the iconic and brilliant um, opening line of this book is Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich. Those are the first words, and um, you get this idea. She seems to unite some of the best blessings in existence. She, she's too clever for her own good, but she's also handsome and rich, and she's this amazing catch. Anyway, that happens. She utterly fails to match Elton and Harriet, and in so doing, she actually sort of ruins Harriet's prospects by telling her not to accept a farmer. Uh, Robert Martin, who's a really nice guy. Oh, Robert Martin. I know, really in love with Harriet. And this all happens in the first volume. You you get more and more frustrated with Emma because she's clearly pulling them apart. Harriet and Robert Martin would be a great match. And they obviously do have affection for each other. But Emma's like, no, if you marry this farmer, you can't be my friend anymore because, you know, we're a different social class then. Um, I'll never be able to come call on you or visit you and... Yeah, and and she's so selfishly. That's what Maggie said when she said, described Emma as a selfish twat. Is the selfishness that her wanting Harriet for her her own friend and destroying her her prospects. Mister Knightley, Emma's older brother-in-law, has always been a mentor and sees himself as sort of a guardian to her. And when he finds out what she has done, he is furious. So then he really, well, Robert Martin, I believe, is one of Mr. Knightley's uh, tenants, I guess you would yes. say. Yes. Um, so he knows him, and despite the fact that he is just kind of a lowly farmer, Mr. Knightley very much respects Robert Martin, um, sees him as very sensible, uh, thinks it would have been a great match, and so he's definitely upset with Emma for getting in the way. In talking about this book, we also have to talk about the amazing 1996 adaptation with Gwyneth Paltrow who, if you're trying to understand the character of Emma, the real life Gwyneth Paltrow is Oh my God, I know. Emma. No, <laughs> it's so true. Like she didn't even have to act. It's basically Emma is the most Gwyneth that ever Gwynethed a Gwyneth. <laughs> it's like if Emma was a person, a teenager today, right? She would totally have a blog where she, in a lifestyle website where she told everyone she knew how they should live their life. Uh, where to get the best locally sourced kale. Um, this would absolutely, she would absolutely be Gwyneth Paltrow. Absolutely. <laughs> she really would. And um, as you know, 
uh, Clueless is an adaptation of Emma. And so if you've seen Clueless, just think of Cher. She's this totally, you know, space cadet, superficial, sort of um, trendy girl. But in the, in the 1996 adaptation of the original, which stars Gwyneth and Jeremy Northam as Mr. Knightley, there is this scene where they're arguing about Harriet and Robert Martin, where the filmmakers did something very clever and they have them both shooting arrows. They're, pra- they're doing archery, you know, like they're doing archery practice is a fun little thing to do. And Emma, as she's arguing with Jeremy Northam, starts to get shoot wilder and wilder shots. And um, because she's really wrong, her logic is wrong. And my, Mr. Knightley is there to tell her like, you know, it's not a degradation for illegitimacy and ignorance to marry a respected, intelligent farmer. And she's like, yeah. no. <laughs> and then he says, men of sense, whatever you may say, do not want silly wives. And he lets the arrow go. <laughs> it's really a funny, yeah. funny scene. But if you've ever seen the poster for that movie, it's her holding a, a bow and arrow. And actually in, in the book, there's a, a mention of an arrow too, but I won't get a, away from ourselves. So back to the plot summary. Mr. Elton um, is extremely offended when he proposes to Emma and finds that all along she was trying to match him up with this girl of uncertain origin, and he's extremely offended by that. He goes away to Boff. He brings a wife back, Mrs. Elton. And oh, she Lord. is such a funny character. She is one of Austin's finest uh, comic creations. She comes back, and uh, she and Emma are immediately at loggerheads, and they're always sniping at Emma and trying to put her down. So it, it makes Emma's social situation very uncomfortable in that way. Meantime, a new guy comes into the neighborhood. His name is Frank Churchill, and he is the son of Mr. Weston. So he's sort of like an extended sort of like, he's not a family member, but they're obviously both related to people who love each other. And therefore, everybody's sort of thinking in their mind that Frank Churchill is a perfect husband for Emma. And, and we of- should mention that despite the fact they've never met him in person, um, he was the son of Mr. Weston's late wife and was raised um, with her parents. So, But Mr. Weston has talked of him constantly to everyone. Everybody knows about Frank Churchill. Everybody knows the details of him. And so, but they've never met him in person. Um, so he's sort and- of larger than life. Right. He's kind of been built up as this amazing person, even though no one has met him at all in the neighborhood. And Emma loves this idea in her mind of a man coming to town and falling in love with her and thinking she's amazing. And on the surface of things in the book, that's sort of what happens. And you think that's the way the story might go, that she might fall in love with Frank Churchill. But as the story goes along, she realizes more and more that she doesn't really care about him and that they're just really good friends, but he is a flirt. So they are constantly flirting in public. Okay. Meantime, a woman comes into their social circle, Jane Fairfax. And Frank Churchill is always sort of saying mean, mean things about Jane Fairfax. Jane Fairfax is a poor woman who has coming to stay with her aunt and her grandmother, the Bateses. And um, they're all in the same social circle together. But Emma hates Jane Fairfax. Everybody in town is always talking about Jane Fairfax as this young person who sort of belongs to the town. And I have, I have a great quote in here about Jane Fairfax. Um, 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 where is it? You can talk while I'm looking for it. Oh, okay. 
Uh, I don't really have anything interesting to say at this point. Uh, oh, no. So basically, Emma's kind of jealous of Jane Fairfax. And to be fair, she does acknowledge that Jane Fairfax is very elegant and very intelligent. But Jane Fairfax is always getting sick all the time. And she's just kind of a stick in the mud. She's not really a super interesting conversationalist. So, I mean, I saw the fact that Emma wasn't besties with her as there was certainly some jealousy involved there, but I mean, she just never really, she wasn't a sparkling personality. This is the quote from Emma talking about Jane Fairfax and why they're not friends. I have known her from a child, undoubtedly. We have been children and women together. It is natural to suppose that we should be intimate and that we should have taken to each other whenever she visited her aunt, but we never did. I hardly know how it has happened, a little perhaps from that wickedness on my side, which was prone to take disgust towards a girl so idolized and so cried up as she always was by aunt and grandmother in all their set. And then her reserve. I could never attach myself to anyone so completely reserved. And there's another passage, too, where she's talking to to, uh, to Harriet, where she where she says this, and I love this passage as well. She says, one is sick of the very name of Jane Fairfax. Every letter from her is read 40 times over. Her compliments to all friends go round and round again. And if she does but send her aunt the pattern of a stomacher or knit a pair of garters for her grandmother, one hears of nothing else for a month. I wish Jane Fairfax very well, but she tires me to death. And one thing that is not helping uh, is that um, Mr. Knightley, this brother-in-law, who's, um, by the way, 16 years older than Emma, and sees himself sort of as a guardian of Emma. Uh, he loves Jane Fairfax and thinks she is, I'm going to borrow a phrase from Mansfield Park, Mr. Knightley thinks Jane Fairfax is the perfect model of a woman. And what Mr. Knightley tries to do with Emma is to encourage her to be more like Jane Fairfax. So that, of course, also makes Emma very pissed off. <laughs> and Did he ever actually explicitly say that to her? Um, he doesn't say perfect model of a woman, but it's pretty obvious throughout the story. He slobbers all over her all the time. Oh, Jane. Oh, it's such a pity. She doesn't have a piano forte. She plays so well. And oh, I'm so concerned for her health. And Emma, you should be friends with Jane. Why aren't you more friends with Jane? And, um, you know, unlike Fanny Price, Emma refuses to be molded by him, the wiser, older guidance man in her life. She breaks out of the Pygmalion story and challenges him at every turn and, and, and really is his intellectual equal rather than someone he's molding. But I'm getting away from myself. Um, so just to finish out the story, um, but to finish out the story, what ultimately happens is that Emma is blindsided when she finds out that all this time Frank Churchill, who's supposed to love her, has actually been secretly engaged to Jane Fairfax the whole time. It's been an utter secret because Jane Fairfax is not rich and he's afraid that his rich aunt will disown him for loving a woman who's lower than he is in social class. So they've been kept, they're keeping apart, Jane and Frank keep apart in public. Frank is always saying really shitty things about Jane, sometimes in her hearing. And when you find this out, you're like... Shamelessly with Emma. What's that? Shamelessly with Emma to kind of make sure nobody knows about him and Jane. Yeah, he's so over the top and pretending. And he doesn't have to be. If he just acted normal around them both, nobody would have suspected him. But he decides to go over the top and, you know, flirt with Emma. And then Emma 
comes to her own realization that all along she has been in love with Mr. Knightley. Surprise! <laughs> you know, she's trying to match make with all these other people, and it turns out she was blind to her own love all along. And um, oh, another thing is Emma thinks at the very end that Mr. Knightley might love Harriet. And that's when she realizes, no, Mr. Knightley must marry nobody but me. And she realizes that she loves Mr. Knightley. So it took that attempt at, you know, matching him up with somebody else to make her realize, oh, my God, no, I love him. If you've ever seen Clueless, it's the scene where Alicia Silverstone goes, oh, my God, I love Josh. Yeah. Isn't she standing in front of a big fountain, a fountain. too at that point that like <laughs> explodes up right when she has this huge realization in her mind? And that's the passage to bring it full circle where it says it darted through her with the speed of an arrow. <laughs> that's why they're calling back to that, those filmmakers in that poster. Um, but um, I think they did a pretty good job of introducing all of the characters in, um, in high altitude. And, and one one thing we didn't talk about and I wanted to talk about today is who these characters are in more detail because that's where the comedy of the book comes in. With all of these characters, they all have their little vanities and their little quirks and Austin draws them out and in all her dialogue, it's really funny because she's just highlighting the way that people are, the vain, you know, stupid things they obsess about. Um, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot. Was there something you wanted to... No, it's fine. I'm just enjoying listening to you. Oh, okay. I'm also worried. I'm also worried that if I try to jump in too many times, it's going to completely freeze our feed. Oh, so. <laughs> yeah, don't don't let me uh, take away from what you have to say. If you want to talk, you should just wave your hand. And... Oh no, I won't. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, okay, good. So let's start out and let's go back to volume one. And I was saying it's very hard to like Emma. Austin knows that it's very hard to like Emma in volume one, and so what she does at the very, very beginning is she talks about Emma's relationship to her father because that's where we see the glimmer of goodness in Emma and that's where we get on her side, hopefully, and bear with her through her selfish behavior. And her father, Mr. Woodhouse, is extremely anxious. He has sort of a, he's older and, and she's the younger daughter and he has sort of a childlike mind. And it says explicitly, he could not meet her in conversation, rational or playful. He's, she's sort of a, t a caretaker, and there's actually sort of a theory out there. Somebody is writing, and the, her name escapes me, if there's a New York Times article about it. Just Google, Google Austin and Alzheimer's, and this New York Times will come up, where this woman sees um, Emma as a caretaker for her father and how that sort of is hard on her and um, how she's, you know, suffering because she has to, you know, spend every evening of her life playing backgammon and handling every tiny little thing that might upset him. And she really manages him. She really makes, makes sure that nothing comes in to upset him. And that's where you, where you start to love her. And by definitely, the way, she definitely, they definitely have a caretaker relationship. I don't, I read that article and I, I kind of disagree with the central idea that her Mr. Woodhouse has Alzheimer's or some kind of dementia because I saw him more as just having a like crippling anxiety disorder. 
Um, I mean, he's able to remember exact dates of a letter that he read. Um, he can't remember, you know, the finishing of a limerick that he knows was really clever, but <laughs> it doesn't seem like his memory is really that impaired. It's just a matter of, oh, we'll always get a chill, or I don't like any change, or if we all go out, we could get caught in the snow. It's just kind of worst case scenario is always where it, he immediately goes but she it, is certainly a caretaker for him and certainly sacrifices a lot of her own um kind of social opportunities to remain with him yes yes and i think that's the and there's one passage too um and i should add at this point that mr knightley her remember her brother-in-law who she falls in love with he's over there all the time he knows what she has to go through and he helps her in so many ways to manage him and that's where you start to love him too, because he's, he's in all the way and trying to help this, this older man not be anxious. And there's one passage where um, they're missed with, with Mr. Woodhouse, who by the way, is still an owner of like landed property and is still essentially, you know, supposed to be running the, his farmers and whatever. Um, maybe they don't have any farmers, but he sort of still has to take care of his own personal business, but he can't. His, his mind is too weak. So they actually describe talking him. He said, they say, Mr. Woodhouse was talked into what was necessary, told he understood, and the papers swept away. And you just see Emma and Knightley managing him that way. And they're, they're on the same wavelength. And, um, you know, all through the rest of what happens with Harriet Smith, I mean, when Emma takes Harriet into her own life and her own confidence, Harriet is dumb as a box of rocks. I mean, she is dumb. <laughs> but she worships Emma. She absolutely worships Emma. And when you start to hate Emma is when Emma becomes obsessed with having Harriet as her little, you know, her mini-me. Because, yeah. but, you know, an argument could be made that she needs that companionship and she doesn't want to be challenged because she's always challenged with her, her father. Where she really should be making friends with Jane Fairfax, in Mr. Knightley's opinion, Jane Fairfax is an extremely elegant, refined, intelligent woman who has all these accomplishments. And Emma sort of hates her for hates her for it. And she hates that Jane Fairfax takes attention away from her. Right. Um, but really, Jane Fairfax is her intellectual equal. And, you know, you sort of hate her for neglecting Jane Fairfax, who is stuck at home with her aunt and her grandmother. Well, not to get too far afield, because I think you wanted to go in and talk about Harriet a bit, but the thing is with Jane Fairfax, she has very little actual dialogue in the book. We never, almost never actually hear her speak to anyone directly until the very end. And if she is, it's usually like, no, I'm not feeling well. I'm just going to go home. Um you know, so we just kind of hear secondhand all the time about how awesome Jane Fairfax is. But personally, for me as a reader, there's not a lot of evidence of that in the book. I mean, yes, she does sing and play the piano beautifully when they have um, people over one evening. But there's really no kind of textual support for the idea that Jane Fairfax is this epitome of womanhood of Regency womanhood. <laughs> just always, you know, getting sick and having a fever and having to go walk home. And um, yes. 
Yeah, we are told time and time again. And, you know, to be honest, it becomes kind of annoying to me, too, because we're both like, well, she's not that great. You know, like, yeah. I think we came away with that. Well, and what's so she- great about Jane Fairfax? Why don't you just go marry Jane Fairfax? Oh, wait. <laughs> Right. Which is exactly what this is exactly exactly when we what we came away with that how we felt when we came away from the book we became Emma a little bit <laughs> in just reading it, um, in and so Mister Mister Woodhouse his childlike dialogue is a little bit of a source of comedy in the book, um, just because he's so nervous and that's his quirk. Um, it's like the middle of June and they want to go for a walk or something. And he's worried that they'll catch a chill. <laughs> right. He has a fire every summer, yeah. like midsummer's Eve and he's got a yeah. fire going. Um, and another source of comedy, um, mem- very memorable comedy in this book is Jane's, Jane Fairfax's aunt, Miss Bates. And I have a copy Miss of Bates. Emma somewhere where I think it's Eudora Welty's quoted on the jacket as saying, that quintessential bore, Miss Bates. And I think everybody knows a Miss Bates in their lives. She, she's a great talker upon small matters. And she just... What is great, what is great about Miss Bates? Sorry, Kristen. It's no. hard to tell when you're stopping with no, the no, video. No. Um, when you're reading it, her, her instances of dialogue will last page after page <laughs> after page with no room for breath, just jumping from topic to topic. It's even reading it is hilarious and exhausting just to see it on the page is very amusing and you can definitely picture in your head this kind of you know old maid type of character who just every thought she has just comes spilling out of her and she just goes on and on and on and it's it's inoffensive everything she says but it's just so much (laughs) so boring and emma gets you know emma is tries to be nice to her but she gets really irritated being around her because she doesn't let anybody else talk she just goes on and on and at the climax one of the emotional climaxes of the book emma loses her cool over it and um it's we won't talk about that too much but i have a little emma could not resist emma could not resist making a joke at this woman's expense and um it's 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 a little you know joke at somebody's expense and that's what's amazing about austin is these little tiny social moments can become huge turning points in the book but i marked out i actually tried to read this out loud earlier because i wanted to give people a sample of miss bates's dialogue so i marked out uh some of it it's my favorite it's my favorite one um she's talking about um for would you believe it miss woodhouse there he is in the most obliging manner in the world fastening in the rivet of my mother's spectacles. The rivet came out, you know, this morning, so very obliging, for my mother had no use of her spectacles, could not put them on. And by the by, everybody ought to have two pair of spectacles. They should indeed. Jane said so. I meant to take them over to John Saunders the first thing I did, but something or other hindered me all the morning. First one thing, then another, there is no saying what you know. At one time, Patty came to say that she thought the kitchen chimney wanted sweeping. Oh, said I, Patty, do not come to me with your bad news. Here is the rivet of your mistress's spectacles come out. And I just, I love, Patty, do not come to me with your bad news. Like, she has to repeat every conversation she has. She has to repeat every conversation she has to other people right after she has had it. And there is another um, amazing thing where 
she is talking to somebody out the window and they have a whole conversation and she turns around to the room and tells them everything that was just said and they could hear it perfectly. That's Miss Bates, the quintessential bore, and it's a huge comedic uh, part. And we were we were t- talking earlier about how pacing, the idea of pacing and comedic timing is different. And for readers of this age who pick up Emma of this t- day and age, um, might struggle with it a little bit. But as long as you can adjust to that rhythm of the book, it, it is truly very funny. I still find it very funny. Mm-hmm. I agree. No, I absolutely agree. Um, and like I said, even visually, it's funny when you see just how long her speeches go on and on. Um, <laughs> you know, I think at some point I would like flip to see like how long and like, oh my God, and how long is she going to talk about these stupid spectacles? Like, okay, <laughs> Frank Churchill's fixing the spectacles. We get it. And it's really point, necessary. <laughs> at some point later in that dialogue, they get interrupted and then Miss Bates goes, what was I saying? And it says, Emma wonders what of all the medley she would fix on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where is she going with this? Um, she actually takes Harriet to Miss Bates's house when Harriet can't stop talking about her broken heart with Mr. Elton. She's like, there's some place I know where you won't be able to talk about Mr. Elton at, indeed, you will not be able to talk at all or whatever. I think yeah. <laughs> that might be from the movie and not the book. Sometimes I do with this oh. Speaking of the movie, I want to mention that Mr. Elton is played by Alan Cumming, yes. who is an amazing actor, if someone is not familiar with him. Uh, but he just does the, oh, he just totally has this great kind of oiliness to him, I guess, is just kind of the word I can come up with, where it's just very off-putting um, and Oh, I just, in my head, I see, I usually don't see film versions of characters in my head when I read the book, but for me, I definitely see Alan Cumming as Mr. Elton. And I, what I will say about the film adaptation, it's, it's beloved by a lot of people. I love it. have seen it more times than I've read the book. And um, sometimes it, the two get blended in my head as well. One of the triumphs of that adaptation is almost all of the dialogue came out of the book. A lot of it has been shortened or slightly, slightly shortened, but all the jokes are the mm-hmm. same as in the book are very similar as in the book. And that faithfulness, I think, is what makes the movie so good because there are so many laugh lines in the book that stay in the movie. Right. And it really translates it very well. I, no, I agree. Too. Um, I So much of the movie, to me, comes off as kind of overly precious at times. Oh, it can be a little Hollywood. You know, Gwyneth, and um, it's just a lot of it is just kind of eye-roll-inducing for me now that I think we have a lot of better adaptations. Uh, Like we were talking about in our previous episode, uh, you know, Northanger Abbey remains one of my favorites, and it feels the most real. Um, But it it is definitely, it is very... um, uh, very loyal to the book. And I, I just, I think you're probably right, actually, that someone coming in and seeing Emma for the first time and not having any background would find it a little precious. I think you're right. And I think it's one of those instances where having seen it when I was in like the eighth grade um, mm-hmm. and, and it just becomes your favorite. You just love whatever adaptation you s- start out being obsessed with. But um and it does get very sappy and romantic in the end, 
which is one of its failings. And there's some unfortunate lines that Austin didn't write that is, are very Hollywood and that just make you facepalm because they're so yeah. bad. Um, but um, what were we talking? I'm just like, well, we were kind of going, we were kind of going through the secondary characters. I think we were talking about Miss Bates. Uh, there are some moments, there's some moments of the adaptation that are just so good though. Um, I was watching it the other night and I got it's a been on HBO regularly lately. Yeah. I really strange. Say... As I've been reading the book, Emma has been airing like every day on HBO. Really? It's really coincidental. Yeah. They, I don't know why they just suddenly started airing it again, but it's really been a big coincidence. The, the lady who plays Miss Bates in the adaptation, I will never be able to not see her either because she, she is a fantastic. fantastic job and she is really funny. Um, well, to talk about Miss Bates and kind of like you were saying about why you like the actress who plays her so much, the thing about Miss Bates is, yes, she does talk a lot and she doesn't have a lot of interesting things to say, but she is just a really sweet, nice, um, really wonderful person. I mean, she's not, things that she says are kind of very inconsequential, but it doesn't change the fact that she's a wonderful person. She never says anything bad about someone. She only talks good about people when she goes on and on and on. Um, and she just is kind of a delightful character, especially as a reader. If you kind of don't want to read through everything, you're like, okay, you kind of skip second page of her <laughs> speeches. But she really, she feels like a fully realized person. And she is just a really nice lady. And that's why when Emma does make a very cheap joke at her expense, it is, it is such a faux pas and she's taken to task for it because this woman is so nice that to make a joke at her expense is so cruel and she takes it so to heart, Miss Bates does. And you just feel so bad. It's kind of like she's annoying, but you can see yourself being mean to her. It's yeah. like kicking a puppy. It's and like a puppy, right? Right, 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 right. Doesn't mean to pee everywhere, but it's a, but it's so cute. It's just so adorable. <laughs> that's true. I think that's true. And um, I actually marked out a passage where Emma makes fun of her to Mrs. Weston and starts talking in her voice and saying, "Oh, our all our petticoats are so strong." And, and Mrs. Weston says, "Do not mimic her, Emma. You divert me against my conscience. Like." Yeah. <laughs> we should be nice to her and um mrs weston sort of at was a mother figure to emma but she's like dion in clueless where emma's so smart and so clever and got has such strength of personality that mrs weston is almost like a secondary friend to who sort of follows emma and that's why knightley is important in emma's life because he's the only one who is willing to tell her when she steps right. up the line and we'll get to him in just a second. But first, we have to talk. They, I think they explicitly say in the book, too, I can't remember if it's Knightley or Mrs. Weston who actually comes out and says it, where basically she was never really much of a governess. She was never really able to get Emma to do all her reading and do her writing and do her studies because Emma was basically already operating at a higher kind of activity and intellectual level than her, even when she was employed as her governess. Um, I think she kind of, you know, obviously she was dealing with a, a child and she was an adult. So there was something there. But when it came to actually, Emma, you should really make sure he is like, I'm going to go over here. Like, OK, she didn't really try very hard 
yeah. to rein her in right. as a governess. It, there's a line in the, I forget if it's in the book now, the movie in the book is so blended. And I wish I could quote this book like in, I can quote Mansfield Park, but I actually can't. There's some line where it's like, um, she won't be urging me to better myself anymore. Right. Now she's gone and married. And he, he says, that should not matter as you just, Knightley says, that should not matter as you always did just as you pleased. Yeah. Like why, why should this be any different? I love how her father, despite the fact that through the events of the book happened you know, over a year, I think um, he still refers to Mrs. Weston as Miss Taylor. Oh, poor Miss Taylor. <laughs> because she had to, she had to leave Hartfield. Yeah. Um, she married a man that she loves and now has her own home and is li- very happy, but she'll still always be poor Miss Taylor. You can't, he can't see it that way because he's, <sighs> He's so childlike. There's one more thing we have to talk about. And then I really, really, really am excited to talk about Emma and Mr. Knightley. But first, we really have to briefly just mention that in the movie, Ewan McGregor plays Frank Churchill and the wig. The wig oh, is awful. My God. If you the wig is awful. McGregor- and it's not just the wig. It's also, if you have seen um, Moulin Rouge, you know that... At times, Ewan McGregor can be very toothy. Do you know what I mean? Like, when he sings, it's not like... When he sings, he sings like... Like, all his tears. If you could see... If you're watching the video, you can see me making the face. Frank Churchill smiles all the time. And I basically just want to punch him in the face. Yeah, he's a very punchable face. And he is so he is almost oily like Mr. Elton is oily. When he is pretending to be sort of falling in love with Emma, he actually does some pretty showy peacocky stuff. For example, Emma is playing the piano and singing. And halfway he comes the song, in and just joins. He gets up comes in and sings the second verse and comes to stand by her and everybody's like, oh, it's so cute. No, in the movie, in the movie, it's just ridiculous because it's Ewan McGregor and he just looks ridiculous when he sings. (laughs) And it's, so in, in the book, it's not really, it's, it's just like, oh, it was really nice. He has a great voice. In the movie, it's kind of like a much bigger deal in my mind because he's just so ridiculous looking that I just can't get, I'm like, I can't watch. It's like watching one of the, like the office, you know, where you just can't, it's too weird. And he is such a disgusting character too. Really? Okay. So this is, I don't know. We disagree on Frank Churchill. No, no, I have a quote for you. Okay. And you're going to realize, so when I was going back through this book, (laughs) you're going to realize. And so when you're going back, when I was going back through this book, it's like when you read it at the time, you're just seeing him as Frank Churchill, unengaged guy, but he actually says a lot of mean stuff about Jane Fairfax, his secret engaged and secret fiance in her hearing. And now she's a sensitive person who wants to do right. She knows she's violated a code of honor by consenting to a secret engagement. And what's even worse about it is that they're pulling the wool all over, over everybody's eyes, every people that they love, they're pretending in front of them and she feels terrible about it. But he is such, um, it's sort of untethered from morality that he gets a real kick out of it. He thinks it's really Okay. But when you're done, when you're done reading it, I, I do have a rebuttal. Okay, but let me read it. In defense of Frank Churchill. I'm going to write a thesis paper and call it In Defense of Frank Churchill. Um, Well, and and we have to remember, too. I'm just going to drink my wine. That um, Emma. Where's your wine, Kristen? I'm not drinking wine. Yeah, sorry. I I didn't even think of it. And then we got on the call and I was like, ah, damn. 
This is um, what happens when I'm not there with you. You stay sober. Yeah. And it's going to be much less interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Sadly. But I won't laugh quite as hard. And so I won't have quite as much editing to do where I have to cut out five, 10 seconds of laughter where That's nothing true. is happening. Okay. Well, I'm going to refill while you're looking for it. Oh, what, what you need to know about Emma and Jane Fairfax is that Emma dislikes Jane Fairfax enough to speculate some things about her that are very not nice. And one of the things Emma speculates is that Jane Fairfax actually came back to Highbury, you know, to stay with her aunt instead of going to Ireland with the rest of her family because her adoptive sister has just gotten married to a man, Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon. And Emma believes, she has a cute little theory because she's this matchmaker type, that Jane Fairfax has fallen in love with her, um, with Miss Campbell's husband, Mr. Dixon, Mrs. Dixon's husband, right? And rather than go to Ireland to see his ancestral home, she can't do it because she's so in love with him. And Emma is such a little bitch. She is such a little gossipy bitch that she actually says this to Frank Churchill. She's like, oh my God, I have a theory and it's so bad. And he's like, I love that theory, right? Because it is more cover for him being secretly engaged to her. He's like, that is hilarious and I love it. And he takes every opportunity to um, tease Jane Fairfax about it with Emma. He and Emma team up and they're the mean girls and they they drop the name Mr. Dixon around Jane Fairfax, who gets very upset, not because she's in love with Mr. Uh, Mr. Dixon, but because her fiance is being shitty to her and pretending to sort of be with Emma. And it's, it's, it's awful. It's, it's, it's torture for her. And I have one passage where um, I just think that the awfulness comes out so well. All right. So in this scene, one of the things Frank Churchill does is he orders a piano to be delivered anonymously to Jane Fairfax's house so she can play the piano because he knows she loves to play the piano and the Bateses are too poor. And she's apparently really, really good. I mean, basically, they talk about the Regency era version of she should go on American Idol. Like they, everyone yeah. thinks she's really, really good. Amazing <laughs> singer. So Emma and Frank are sitting there and there Jane is playing an Irish melody, right? And they turn to each other and Frank says, I'm so glad you told me about, um, Jane Fairfax and her secret love for Mr. Dixon, because now I have a key to all her odd looks and all her odd ways. Leave shame to her. If she does wrong, she ought to feel shame. And that shame is about the fact that they just mentioned Mr. Dixon to her. And right. Emma's like, no, you know, don't do that. Don't upset her. I feel, I feel bad about it. And Frank's like, if she's done wrong, she should feel it. Well, she, he's the one who's doing wrong with her. They're engaged together. And that's such a horrible thing to say because she does feel shame every day. And so for him to like throw it in her face as though he's this pure, perfect guy, if she does wrong, she should feel it. And, and that, that, that to me is... Ugh, he's so gross. It's so awful that he said that. Okay, okay so here's here's my rebuttal. I feel like everything that Frank Churchill says when they are in large group situations, um, I'm sure when he's at home with the Westons, he just kind of is more himself. Everything that he says and does is basically an act that he has to wear all the time. So no one will ever suspect that he and Jane are in love and have been engaged. And once you remember that basically his 
Mrs. Churchill is basically this iron maiden, horrible, controlling person. Um, that's why they had to become secretly engaged. Uh, because his family would not approve. His family would not have given their consent. I, I mean, the implication is he would have been disinherited. They would have no living. So even if they did get married, they'd be poor and they'd be miserable. The so everything thing- that he does, from my perspective, is he's just trying to make sure that no one suspects and no one finds out. And so it's an, it's an act. What's not okay is that he's having fun with it. And there's another scene where they're all putting, um, they ha- they're playing with the alphabet. One of the kids that stays at Emma's house, her, right. her nieces and nephews, are playing with the alphabets and putting together word puzzles for each other. So they're making, making a word and then mixing up the letters and then pushing it over to someone else to see if they can figure out what the word is, like a jumble. And so um, Frank Churchill makes want a jumble out of the word Dixon. And he says to Emma, I'm going to give this to Jane Fairfax. Let's see how she behaves. And Emma's like, no, for shame, you should not. And Jane's right there. She can hear them laughing about it. She knows exactly. And he pushes a word to her and she sees that it's Dixon and she goes red. Like she's so ashamed for the deception and he didn't need to do it. It was totally unnecessary to prolong this joking thing with Emma. He he doesn't have to bring it up at all. I mean, and I don't know, it's such a mean girl thing to do. That's yeah. the no, worst I take your point. I take your point. But I just to me, I mean, and I just feel like I don't dislike him as much as you do. I'm not really sure why. <laughs> um I mean, it's not his fault that Jane Fairfax's reaction to their having the secret engagement is to be sick all the time and not want to talk and be interesting. Like that's not his fault that her reaction is to beat herself and this must be like a difference in culture where I don't really understand why it's so shameful to have this <sighs> secret engagement, but it's just kind of like, he's just trying to not have people figure it out so they can be happy. One day he buys her this huge and expensive piano forte. Um, it's I'm like, it's not his fault that she reacts to having to keep this secret by taking, becoming a total dish rag, you know, it's not, <laughs> Yeah. Yes, he does enjoy it. And but I mean, we all Kristen, this is the thing I try not to judge characters like this too harshly, because I know that I have certain friends that I get around and we just talk shit the whole time. And it's <laughs> fun. Sometimes, sometimes being the mean girl is fun. You don't do it in front of other people when they can hear you. I mean, that is definitely rude. But again, it's all part of the ruse. He needs people to think that he really doesn't like her. So it's, we. I mean, I have friends I get around with and we make really awful mean jokes and it's fun and it's just kind of about me yes about me no now. of course not Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> you're the you're the one that i get together with and make mean jokes about other people <laughs> <laughs> well i have to say your version of mean must not be very mean because i i don't remember you doing that to uh to anybody um, no, maybe it's just in my head then <laughs> I, just try, I mean, Frank Churchill, in my mind, Frank Churchill, the only person that he ever seems to really disparage is Jane Fairfax. And it's interesting that to you, that's kind of the most harsh thing because he is in love with her. But to me, it's kind of the only forgivable one. He's, he doesn't make fun of Miss Bates. He doesn't make fun of other, of her mother, who's, you know, of Mr. Woodhouse, you know, he doesn't make fun of people unless it's part of his act he really needs people to think that he doesn't care for Jane Fairfax 
Um, and when he finds out, I mean, you find out at the end when all is revealed that Jane Fairfax thinks that he really is in love with Emma and that she accepts the position as a governess at an estate. She basically dumps him because he has been so cruel um, and she's going to go off. And he doesn't know about it. There's a there's some kind of miscommunication. This book is full of miscommunications. He doesn't, but as soon as he finds out that she really means to end their engagement and take a position as a governess, he flies out the door and rides all night to go to her. And the truth comes out. Um, and so I think it's clear he does, he, he passionately loves her. He's just trying to make sure nobody knows. I so I'm, that. I forgive, I'll forgive a lot. <laughs> for love you you know yes and at the end you know it does come come out and he's yeah I know what you mean I I, I get I get it I get it Austin, so let me ask let me ask you a question though the reason why he is able to come to her side and the truth comes out is because Mrs. Churchill has died very suddenly and conveniently <laughs> <laughs> so I'm one, so I think though that if she hadn't died and he hadn't inherited everything and then was able to marry Jane Fairfax, he wouldn't have been able to go to her and she would have just become a governess and she would now be living, well, not now, obviously it's 200 years later, but she would then have just gone and been living, taking care of these rich, spoiled kids the rest of her life. Eventually, probably, yes, but she was going to put it off for like another year you know, a couple yeah. of months at least. But because um, she dumped him, she accepted it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because, and, and Mrs. Elton, this horrible character who we sort of haven't gotten into too much sort of forces it onto her. Mrs. Elton is a, um, a really bossy witch who, who takes, who sort of adopts Jane Fairfax. And she's like, I'm going to get you the, this most amazing position as a governess. And even though Jane says time, time and again, like, no, I'm not ready. I don't want to. This woman is so pushy. And she's a funny, um, she's a conceited, vain character. And one of the funniest things about her is her vo- her um, conversational flourishes because she thinks she's so witty and cute that when she comes from, from Bath uh, with Mr. Elton and they're married and she comes into society, her dialogue is hysterical and it's hysterical in the um in the book and in the movie where she talks about Mr. Elton but rather than just saying Mr. Elton or my husband she always Mr. refers e. to him as Mr. E oh yeah. Mr. E and he, oh my god she's like Harley Quinn in the Batman <laughs> Mr. J where she always calls the Joker Mr. J or she says <laughs> my caro sposo, like in <laughs> Italian, right? Or, or, or she said, oh, my lord and master. I must ask my lord and master. And she thinks she's so cute every time she says it, Mr. E. And, um, so, here, so this is, I think that one of the great things about Emma is that you were saying in volume one, Emma is basically the mean girl, right? It's kind of hard to like her in volume one. Once you meet Mrs. Elton and you see what a real mean girl is <laughs> like, because she is, no, she is. Yes. She absolutely is. She comes in and she basically tries to hijack the social um, circle of the neighborhood. She knows what's best. She, her family is at Maple Grove and is rich and does everything appropriately. Um, she's the real mean girl. So once you meet Mrs. Elton, you're like, well, Emma's fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> comparison. That's true. She does come up very well in comparison. Yeah. She does. 
she's not she's not overly familiar and yeah. um yeah and she her, refers uh, doesn't she refer to mr knightley as just knightley and yes. emma is like what <laughs> excuse me excuse knightley not mr knightley or even george but just nightly like who the hell do you think you are woman it's oh great God. i kind of wanted them to have a cat fight it would have been amazing and it, that's one of the funniest parts of the movie and i still to this day laugh so hard when i watch the movie at that at that part and um because they did take it almost verbatim and put it in the movie and i couldn't figure out how to do it for hangouts on air but <sighs> I really you're wanted, really making me want to watch the movie tonight <laughs> i really wanted to, yeah i watched it last night and i really wanted to splice in at least that clip because it's so funny yeah but and, and uh so it goes like this so mrs elton says is seated on a on a divan talking to miss woodhouse it's the first time that they've they've met she's just moved into the neighborhood and she says to to emma she says uh, oh we were at the westons guess who came in when we were there and emma's like i cannot imagine <laughs> and mrs elton's like nightly and goes nightly <laughs> nightly mr east friend <laughs> Oh, quite the gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, oh, and then she's also shot like, oh, you had to, oh, and Emma definitely, this is one of the hints that Emma might have stronger feelings for him uh, than you, than she lets on, the narrator lets on. Um, her reaction to that, like needing to meet him and spend time with him to understand that he was a gentleman. Like to Emma, he is the epitome of the Regency man. And so the idea that someone would discount him or consider him as worth less than he is or not worth the maximum amount of respect is like completely shocking. Um, and she takes great offense on his behalf. Let's talk about them. Let's talk about Emma and Knightley and, and wind up, because I don't know how long we've been going on. This this is not showing me how long we've been talking. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's almost five o'clock now. So we've definitely been talking for over an hour. Okay. Man, I thought you wanted to save them. I thought you wanted to save them for a whole episode. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Why don't, can, how would you feel about talking about some of the broader themes of the book? Because there's a lot of really interesting stuff about social class and wealth. Yes. Um, that I would actually think would be really interesting to talk about. And we have to Oh, talk. and the narrator. We should talk more about the idea of the, the narrator, like you were saying. And we have to talk about the two climactic scenes, um, the one where Knightley leads Harriet to dance and Box Hill with the insult. And we right. really need to treat those in depth. Well, I think we're definitely going to get three episodes out of Emma. Yes. Okay. So then let's wrap up today with the promise of discussing Knightley and Emma and their love right. <laughs> and why you can get invested in it. And um, just the realness. I'll leave you with this, this thought that the realness of the people that we're laughing at here, the realness of Miss Bates, yes, the yes. realness of everybody, and the realness of Knightley and Emma that we're going to talk about. We talked a little bit about their their accord, their perfect wavelength. This is what I, I was thinking. Um, there is this scene that invests me in Emma and Knightley, and that is that the the snow is coming down. They're visiting the Westin. Snow is coming down. Emma's father is getting very it's Christmas antsy. Eve. Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. And um, it's someone Christmas comes in. Eve, eighteen twenty, whatever. <laughs> so, right, yeah. the Christmas of what? Set the yeah. scene. Someone, set the scene. <laughs> that's right. Someone, someone comes in, Mister Mister John. Well, I won't even say his name because it'll be confusing the people who haven't read the book. Anyway, 
someone comes in and says, it's snowing outside. Oh my God. You know, are we going to be able to get home in the carriages? And what happens is Mr. Knightley immediately goes out, looks at the roads, comes back in and tells Mr. Woodhouse, who is freaking out that there's nothing to worry about. And then he has this exchange with Emma and it only has to be a few words. And they sort of look at each other and he says, your father will not be easy. Why do you not go? And she's like, yes, um, I completely agree. Let's order the carriages. And they just take care of it. And um, managing people who, you, you know, have anxiety. And there's another even better passage that we'll talk about next time. What I wanted to say about Austin is that I I think of Austin and all these real little characters and all these little bits of conversation. If you think of an author creating a dollhouse, right? Every author creates a little tiny world for you to peer into. And if you think of it as a dollhouse, you know, every author would have a different um, uh, way of constructing it and a stylized way of making it. So for example, if if you looked at the uh, Dickens and his dollhouse, every character would be a caricature, not a picture of a real person. You know, it would be Ebenezer Scrooge or Uriah Heep or, um, you know, Mr. Micawber or whatever. Everybody has an, an oversized, bigger than life personality, for example. And many, author- many other authors, we could say, you know, what their quirks are. When you look at Austin's dollhouse, you see your life rendered in exact detail, even down to like, the toothpaste spit, all of the tiny flaws that everybody has, all of the tiny moments that happen that you have in your life and, and you you sort of um, um, react to those. That's the, the triumph of Emma. It's one of the reasons why it's a masterpiece is it paints using these little conversational exchanges, paints such an amazingly detailed picture of your life. And I that's think for me, um, the, and like I said earlier, this is a common theme that we have talked about is how one of the geniuses of Jane Austen and why she is so so long beloved in the canon of English writers is that even now her characters are people that you know. And for me, more than any of the books that we have talked about or that I have read of hers, Emma, every character. Every, no matter secondary characters, even tertiary characters, every person is fully realized. Even Miss Bates, who was kind of the most caricaturist of them all, and I don't think that's a word. I think I just made it up. <laughs> um, she is kind of the most ridiculous because of the way she speaks. But there are people like that, and we all know them. I, hell, I am probably that person <laughs> for a lot of people, where my dialogue would go on and on for page after page. <laughs> no, um, but. No. Every single character in that book is a real person, and we all know people who are like that. And so when you're reading, I mean, we just had like a 15-minute discussion about Frank Churchill, good guy or bad guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> even, even, he, even he is so fully realized that we have had different interpretations of the type of person he is. Yes. And the heating just kicked on in my home, which means that there well, will be good. horrible white noise on the rest of this okay. recording. <laughs> So it's a great time to cut, um, cut it off, uh, wind it up. Kristen, uh, tell the public about our email address. Yes, our email address is firstimpressionspodcast at gmail.com. And you can use the dots or not. It's first.impressions.podcast at gmail.com, but Gmail will take it either way. So 
a yeah, feel Gmail, free. take it any way you want. Any way you want it. And, and I don't think I have any other old business except for thank you, everybody who has listened to our podcast, who are amazing. Yes, and thank you. It's you. very exciting. I mean, we basically do this because we both find it interesting. Um, and there's no like hope of celebrity or of anyone even listening. So the fact that people are and are enjoying it is really gratifying. Um, it's kind of a nice little treat. Yeah. Uh, so please do send us questions, though. I think it would be really cool to get some questions from the public about um, Emma or just anything Austin related. And before we leave, I have to do my usual description of my wine. So this is the Kirkland Signature Costco <laughs> brand. <laughs> Kirkland makes it has some good wine. I am not going to dump on Kirkland. Sonoma County Chardonnay. And I just want to say it's quite good. Here's the thing about Costco. I think I heard this on NPR. They are actually the number one distributor of wine in the world. Mm. So if, if Costco picks up a wine and puts it in their store, it's going to sell and be huge. Um, and, you know, we can joke all we want about, oh, Costco brand, blah, blah. This is good. And it was like seven bucks. So I don't have any shame. I'm obviously not. I'm putting it out there <laughs> for all 300 of our listeners, all 300 members of my mom's Torah study group. <laughs> <laughs> we respect your taste and I have had some excellent Kirkland wine. So, all righty. Here's so, you, the, um, the Idaho wine that you made us drink was not so much, but you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> tell me how you really feel <laughs> okay i'm just kidding um all right well thank you so much Kristen. i hopefully the um sound quality and everything on this will be okay um, on the east coast watching netflix right now so that's why the network's a little slow yeah get off netflix guys we had to do our hangouts on air don't degrade our audio quality so yes. all right i'm gonna stop, stop watching the, uh... making a murderer yeah right <laughs> all righty okay thanks Thanks and bye, I guess. We'll see you next time. See you next time.